You know, when I come to these attempts to exposit or uh, explore the scriptures, I usually have a general idea of the curriculum of which text I'm going to be teaching and when. But as you know, there's often times where I, we run out of time or I've overprepared and so it kind of changes around. And if you remember where we ended in our text last week, I ended, ended in chapter 9, verse 23, and I actually debated skipping these next three verses because they're very familiar, incredibly familiar. In fact, they're preached every four years at the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> at least it feels like it. Uh, and I also thought, you know, because chapter 10 start, goes off on a whole different subject matter, to try to treat three verses in any short period of time would probably not do much for it. And then <coughs> I thought, you know, no one will miss it. No one will even notice that I skipped it, right? You probably, probably don't know that I skipped half the book of Ezekiel when I was teaching uh, because the chronology did, didn't work out when we were teaching that. But then I changed my mind. <laughs> the more I got into this, the more, like every time we come to the scriptures and try to unravel it and, and dig deep into it, there's more fascinating history and stories and illustrations that come out. And so I decided, okay, I'll give it a shot. Well, in reviewing my material this morning while eating breakfast, I ended up throwing out seven illustrations because this class would take two and a half hours if I did. <laughs> So I start with something where I was going to skip it to where there's so much here, we could come back again next week and the next week and the next week and really never get to the bottom of what Paul's illustration here and why it's such a favorite. So to repeat our context, chapters 8 through 11, yeah, pretty much 8 through 10, but 8 through 11, Focus on the question of eating meat sacrificed to idols. At the end of chapter 8, Paul offers himself as a, and his actions as an example of the principle that the Christian should consider the sensibilities of others so that their conduct does not cause another person to stumble on their faith journey. And we explored that. In chapter 9, which we dealt with last week, he established his apostolic credentials and as the founder of the Corinthian church, and he establishes the fact that he has the same rights as others. The right to eat and drink, to marry, not eat, drink, and be merry, but eat, to drink, and to marry, and the right to require payment for his work as a pastor. But in verse 12, he said, we did not exercise this right so as not to cause an obstacle on the way to the gospel. In other words, his personal rights are less important than the proclamation of the gospel. And then he says, even though he is free, he made himself a bondservant to everyone. And then ends with the phrase, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Then seemingly, in the text you have in front of you, he goes off in this crazy tangent that seemingly has nothing to do with anything else. Well, actually it does, but let's just read it together and then I'll come back through and we'll take a look at it. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Now, if you don't know any context, you haven't done any sort of history or looking at anything, this text seems completely out of place in chapter 9. I mean, think about it. We're talking about meat sacrifice to idols, and suddenly he's off talking about running and boxing. That doesn't make sense unless you are a speaker or a teacher who uses illustrations to make your point. Now in this particular case he doesn't necessarily come back to it afterwards to say see what I meant? He basically says you know what I mean. I mean as a teacher you give illustrations and you you can tell whether the group got it. Half of them did the first time. Maybe, maybe 20%. But this is how it works. You use an illustration, and this is a vivid one. When we did our original um, uh, introduction to Corinthians, I had talked about the nature of uh, the geography of Corinth, where it was located. I'm not going to do this perfectly because I'm doing this in memory, uh, but you'll get the idea. We have Paul had come over to Corinth. Uh, let's just see, there's this little bit. Now. Okay, and Athens was about right over here. And Corinth is 50 miles away. Actually, it's a little closer here. And there is this isthmus, which now has a canal, which you had seen a little thing about it, apparently. There's actually ships now going through it, or they're trying to mm -hmm. resurrect its use. And they cruise it through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but back in this time, there was no isthmus. The people who would come across here would actually unload their, their boats, carry the boat across, or carry the goods across, and then repack it so they could get down this way. So 50 miles in difference. A big thing in Athens every four years is something was called the Olympics. The Olympics happened every four years in Athens without interruption from 776 BC to 393 AD. That's 1169 years without <coughs> interruption. In between, on the off second year, that's when we have our Winter Olympics. But back then, they had the Isthmian Games, which were performed right here. So 50 miles away, they had alternative games called the Isthmian Games. If you do your chronology and you kind of go back and figure out the 18-month period into which Paul was in Corinth, because remember, he was in Athens for maybe 30 days, if that. And then he left and went to Corinth and spent a year and a half there. During that time, the Isthmian Games 
happened. So did Paul go? Probably, because everybody went. The whole town, the whole countryside. And if you think about Paul as a minister of the gospel in the market square, what better place to go than to where everyone else is? And then he can be talking to people, and it's this big event. If he didn't go, he's obviously really familiar with how they worked. Because if you read this text, this is someone who has watched the games. There's no question. <coughs> or he's interviewed athletes. Now, these games were so important that at one point in history, I don't remember exactly when, probably around 300 BC or something, Athens was at war with Corinth. So that would be us being at war with Casa Grande. Okay, we're really close and you have the bigger and the smaller and there's this war going on, but the games were about to happen, so they called a truce. And the Corinthian athletes, you know, performed in the Athens games and the Athens, you know, and then, and then after the games were over, said, okay, back to fighting. <laughs> That was pretty wild. Now, the games ended in 393 AD when Emperor Theodosius decided they were no longer uh, worth the effort. But fascinating, they, were, they, were, they had the foot race, they had jumping, they had wrestling, boxing, and pancration. Now we talked about this very briefly before. Pancration is the ancient form of MMA, mixed martial arts. It was fist fighting and kicking and wrestling all in one, and it was incredibly violent. I actually did a little, I, I go on so many rabbit trails, but I did a little study of pugilism or boxing, the history of boxing. There's actually uh, references to it in the Iliad. That's how ancient the sport of boxing was, probably because it started with toddlers punching each other in Sunday school. Oh, sorry, uh, whatever it was. But anyway, and it just grew into a sport. Well, it got more, more and more violent until in the Roman era, they didn't use the bare fist. They began strapping leather with metal studs on them, like gladiator style and they would stick the two people and they would put a little circle inside the arena and let these guys fight to the death. That's, at that point, you know, I think it was around 350 AD, they finally banned that practice because it was, well, they were using up an awful lot of good men and they needed, them, they needed the soldiers for other things. Um, so, you know, I mentioned was Paul a fan, or did he did he follow this? Because if you think about it, in his writings he talks about runners in First Corinthians, boxers. He talks about in Corinthians 15 fighting with beasts. In Second Timothy, he talks about the judge awarding a prize. In here here in First Corinthians 9 and in Philippians 13, he talks about a goal and a prize. Here and over in 2 Timothy 2, he talks about a garland wreath. In 1 Timothy 4, he talks about training for a contest. In 2 Timothy 2, he talks about the rules of a contest. 
He uses this illustration multiple times in Corinthians and in Timothy. Now, could it be when he was writing this to Timothy, it's because Timothy was a Greek? And he understood this? You realize games are never mentioned in the Gospels at all? Not even once. There's not even an allusion to them. And yet, throughout Paul's writings, it's brought out. Now, obviously, that means there weren't any games in Israel. I mean, it was just not a thing. But it was quite the thing over in Greek culture. But that particular bit of culture did not translate over into the life of the Jewish people at all. One of the few things that didn't. So, you have in, on your handout, you have a couple pictures which are interesting. The top one is the Pan-Athenaic, so you see the word Athens in there, the Pan-Athenaic Olympic Stadium in 1896, which was the resurrection of the modern Olympics. It was first held in 1896 in Athens. The picture below that is one of the races being held in that stadium. And notice the ropes to set off the lanes for the runners. Isn't that so quaint? <laughs> I mean, so all sorts of fascinating stuff comes out about this stadium. And the reason I bring it up is that this is where my rabbit trail began, is in the text. It says, do you, know not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? The word race is the Greek word stadia. S-T-A-D-I-A. The word run or race means is stadia and has two meanings. One is to perform a race, but it was also a measurement. Stadia is a measurement. It is a specific length. And that length is 600 feet, or 200 yards. The stadium you're staring at in that picture, that one of those legs of the long U is exactly one stadia. It's 200 yards, 600 feet. They were built that way intentionally. Now, if you change this, you see a word that comes out of it? Stadium, that's where we get the word from. Every Greek stadium or place where a race was held was built like this. I, there is so much arcane information on the internet and I end up finding much of it. Uh, <laughs> I actually found a YouTube video of a fellow who had gone through all of the archaeological digs and discoveries of stadia in ancient Greece. And each one, if they clear away a certain area, you see this shape show up. The difference is, is the size of the seating. In some of the smaller, more rural areas, there might be seating for 200 people, you know, a couple rows along the side. This particular stadium, when they rebuilt it, seats 50,000. 
and there's actually actually found a picture of it fairly full, and it's quite a quite a spectacle when you look at it. Um, the stadium here in Athens was rebuilt about 50 years after the last book of the New Testament was written by a fellow named Herod Atticus. And he felt, you know, here's now with the Roman Empire now, but he felt that the Athens and the Athens games were such an incredible spectacle that they need to show off the city of Athens to the world when they all came. And so they rebuilt this stadium and in every seat, every row was encased in marble. And it was considered one of the wonders of the world at the time. An extraordinary, beautiful place. Imagine, uh, let's think of a, imagine the Cardinal Stadium, but all the seats are in marble. It'd be a little uncomfortable, but it would certainly be spectacular. That's what they did here. Now, it was, you know, widely, you know, loved, beloved, and everything else. And in later Roman times, they, trans, they transformed the stadium into a place not for running, but for gladiators and wild beasts. So they turned it into a form of a coliseum type of situation. Now, if you notice the architecture also, the one end is open. It's a U-shape. The Romans closed the end in all of their buildings. That's why the Colosseum is round. That's why the Hippodromes, what they do, the horse races, were oval, but with both ends closed off. But it was based on this original design. Somewhere in history, no one knows when or how, this particular stadium was torn apart, destroyed, and all of the uh, marble was stolen. They found four lime kilns in the area and they figured they took the marble and turned them into lime by burning them and just to use it for other reasons. So it wasn't until 1869 that this, era, this space was dug up by an archaeologist and then based on the, an architect's design, they rebuilt it for the 1896 games. You can still go here. This was re, uh, uh, what should I say, um, upgraded for the Athens Olympics a few years back. They had the opening ceremonies here. They had all sorts of other things here because it was a way of honoring the beginning of it all. A little bit of trivia. Sorry, you have to listen because I'm reading it. The first modern Olympic Games had 280 participants representing 13 nations in 43 events. Track and field, swimming, gymnastics, cycling, wrestling, weightlifting, fencing, shooting, and tennis. America's James Connolly was the first Olympic champion when he won the triple jump on the opening day. And it was awarded a silver medal because that's what you gave the winner. In 1896, you gave him a silver medal and he got a laurel wreath just like the ancient Greeks. I found another story about him that he arrived, um, let's see, he, let's, he was a part of Harvard, but he was underclassmen. 
and Harvard refused to give him leave to go to the games. But he was the best triple jumper in the country. And he, he quit Harvard, took back all of the money that he had prepaid or whatever in, in his account, and bought a ticket and, a, and had money in his wallet and joined the rest of the team in Athens. But when he got off the boat, someone bumped him, and the next thing he knew, his wallet was gone. And he had no money. He had nothing. Uh, and then he found out that the Greek calendar was different than the American calendar. He thought he had five days to acclimate and prepare. Instead, he found out he was jumping the next morning. And the first guy went out and jumped 41 and a half feet, some guy from France, and he said, I, I... And someone said, well, just throw your hat next to his marker so you can see where you need to cross. And he went out and on his first jump, he jumped 45 feet and won the Olympic medal. And it was just this wonderful thing. Anyway, I know that's trivia. Who cares? I do. I think it's fascinating. Because I tried the triple jump in, uh, in, in high school and that was different. Um, anyway. To the delight of the locals, a Greek runner by the name of Spiros Luis won the marathon. All the competitors were men, and a few of the entrants were tourists who stumbled on the games and were allowed to sign up. <laughs> Could you imagine going to Barcelona this summer? Hey, I want to show, I want to run in the Wanderer Dash. Okay, come on, we need more people. And that's what they did. Now, speaking of the marathon, very quickly, you ever... The marathon was not part of the original games back in, back in the day. Uh, you may remember this story, and I'll just repeat it for some of you who may not know it. But the story of the marathon came in 490 BC when a fellow by the name of Pheidippides ran from Marathon Greece to Athens to herald the news that the Greek army had defeated the Persians. He ran into the, the market square and shouted, Nike, because that's what he was wearing. No. <laughs> no, Nike is the Greek word for victory. He shouted, victory, and then died. Just keeled over and died. He had run the entire way. And it's 24.8 miles between Marathon and Athens. So in 1896, in honor of that, they decided to hold the first marathon. And they started on the bridge of Marathon and ran 24.8 miles to this stadium that you see the picture of, and that's where the Winter Circle was. Um, and that's where, you know, Spiridon Luis won uh, back at that time. The next year, the Boston Marathon began. They were inspired by the Olympic game marathon and it's become part of the culture of track and field and uh, uh, athleticism ever since. Anybody here run a marathon ever? Oh my goodness, you have? I'm impressed. Well, none of these illustrations will be meaningful to anyone but you. <laughs> <laughs> now it's now 26.2 miles and there's an interesting little tidbit. In the 1908 Olympics, I had to find out that question myself. In the 1908 Olympics, there was no real set distance 
It used to have to be between 24 and 26 miles depending on the terrain. But 1908 Olympics were held in Great Britain and they wanted to start at Windsor Castle and end at the stadium and that was 26 miles. But the finish line, they wanted to put the finish line in front of the royal family's box. <laughs> which was an additional 400 some odd whatever and so 26.2 miles became the standard ever since and all the other places have just changed their parameters for that isn't that what a bit of trivia just the guys we gotta run an extra 400 yards oh my gosh yeah I gotta make an appearance before the Queen won't that be interesting so in the original Olympics, there were three kinds of races. There was, if you look at your picture, there was one time, the 200-yard dash, if you want to call it that. There was down and back, not including the curve. So they didn't make the turn. They turned around at the posts that you see there, very tiny little posts. They would run and turn around and run straight back, because that way they had an exact distance, 200 yards, back, 200 yards back. And then they had a third race that was 12 times down and back. So that's about three miles. Now there's, in John chapter six, verse 19, you have the story of the disciples rowing out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee to, for about three to four miles. It actually says three to four miles in your Bible text. And then while they're in the midst of that tumultuous sea, they see Jesus walking on the water. Which meant they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, because it's about eight miles wide. In the literal Greek, it says they had rowed 25 to 30 stadies. That's where we come up with three to four miles. They just simply made the calculation, and then for our English reading, they just changed it to a calculation that we could understand. Um, I keep wondering when they're going to change the, uh, the ESV to say kilometers uh, for the rest of the world, but I suppose we're still very American. <clears throat> Do you know, not know, know that in a race all the runners won, but only one receives the prize? Now, this brings up some issues for some people because as metaphors go, doesn't that kind of break down? Aren't we, does that mean that only one of us in this room is going to go to heaven? And it's going to be a competition to we, which one of us is the most perfect? Well, we all lose because we can't do it. There's only one perfect and that is Jesus and that's the point. But what he's trying to say, he's talking about the striving in the Christian life the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of sanctification. Not that there is this grand prize that you're gonna receive. In fact, this is where things can get a little mixed up to some people because they might read this and think, oh, I need to do this to be Christian. I need to do that to be Christian. I need to uh, have some sort of work that will that will prove my worth to God. And we have to be very careful that we don't do get mixed up in that concept because that's not how it works. 
The whole book of Galatians is about that. Don't add anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ. You can't add circumcision. You can't add baptism. You can't add daily Bible reading. You can't add going to church. You can't add being a volunteer at the local coffee clutch. You can't, that has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with sanctification, with the idea of pursuing that goal of being a worthy servant. It says every athlete exercises self-control in all things, verse 25. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Every athlete exercises. In some translation, it has the word striving. Every athlete strives. It's actually the word agonizomenos. You hear a little phrase in the beginning? Agony. Agony. <laughs> as, a, as a runner, every athlete agonizes or works really hard to that point and agonizes self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, over in Hebrews chapter 12, mm -hmm. we have a wonderful passage that comments on this. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because all chapter 11 was about these great people of the faith, because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race, the stadia that is set before us. I have my own stories of running. Um, I wanted to style myself as a runner in high school. After basketball, I played basketball, volleyball, and track. And I still remember, it's kind of stupid, but well, I'll even go back further. Junior high, went out for the cross country team. And you know, these are all little gangly, tiny kids with, I mean, I was five foot eight and weighed 90 pounds. I was just such a he-man. Um, but I had long legs and I would run. And we would run around the schoolyard and then down the streets just like you see some of the kids out in, in the streets here and in their training and did my first cross-country race I, to this day I only did one <laughs> I didn't do very well <laughs> but I thought I was amazing in my mind I was an amazing runner now what I didn't realize is that you know when you turn the first turn you can no longer see the billions of other runners that are in front of you, all you see is the one or two that are in front of you. And so I kept striving to pass those that were in front of me. And I remember the final stretch, there was some kid that was maybe 10 yards in front of me and I pressed, I sprinted and I beat him to the finish line. And then they handed me my number or my finishing place. And it was 57. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> I did all that work and I placed 57th. I am so embarrassed because all along the final thing were all these parents cheering for me. Well, they were just supporting any kid that was trying to finish the race. I thought it was all for me. 
because I thought I was about to win the race, not realizing <laughs> that 55 others and 56 others had um, finished before me. So I get into college as a freshman, and there was, I just felt like I wanted to, you know, exercise and, and, and I was somewhat athletic. And there was a track, I should call it a trail, in the back part of Grand Canyon University. It's now all filled with apartment complexes. If you ever go, I can probably even follow the, the old trail. But it was about a mile, and we'd go back from the gymnasium back behind the girls' dorm, you would turn north, go up to, I think it was Missouri. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'd go up to Missouri, and then all the way back to 35th Avenue, back down, and then across. And I would go out there, and it was dusty, it was just a dirt track, that's all it was. There was nothing really to it. And even the part going north was more of a trail, like a cross-country trail. There was no pavement, there was no, nothing graded, nothing at all. And I would go out and I would run it periodically and I thought, you know, I can do better and better and better. And then I was in a class on physical education and part of the thing was running. And to get the A, you had to show improvement. So during one of the classes, the professor, the teacher had us run that route and he timed us. And then he said, okay, for your final exam, you have to have X percentage of improvement of what you did. So I went out and I trained. I trained and I trained. I ran that track every single day. The first time I ran it, I had to walk half of it. But then it got better and better and better. So when we had our final, it was all the guys together and we're all, you know, trying to be manly about it and all very full of ourselves, as college freshman guys are wont to do. But there was one, this one guy, he, he turned to me and started trash talking me a little bit. He says, I am gonna leave, you're gonna eat my dust. It's like, dude, <laughs> no you're not. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. So we go out and we start running. The thing is, is I had trained to have multiple gears so I would have these markers and I would find that rock or that spot and then I would jump to the next gear. And of course, you know, so at the beginning, I'm like eighth or ninth and then suddenly I'm sixth, then fifth, then fourth and third. And then in the front was that kid who told me I was gonna eat his dust. And so I kicked into another gear and so he kicked into his. Then I kicked into another gear and he kicked into his. We're on that back stretch. I kicked in another gear, he didn't have one. And then I kicked in another gear, another gear, another gear, another gear. And won the race and I was all very proud. Later, the teacher decided to have something called a decathlon of sorts, uh, which was open to all students. And these are things like free throw shooting, shot put, air, uh, uh, archery, uh, running, tennis, in other words, just a conglomeration of things just so that we could all participate. And one of them was a mile run and we went to Alhambra High School. And I had been training. And I continued to train. And I knew I was going to win this particular race and get the most points possible. The thing is, the little secret, and I, when I trained, I ran until I threw up. That's how I trained. 
I pushed my body to the point that I had to stop. And, and then I just couldn't do anymore. That's how I trained. And my goal was to have, to have that feeling when I finished at the finish line. And so I would run and finish and have a wonderful experience. <laughs> so I ran that mile race and lapped five of the other guys and won it by 200 yards. Ran in about five minutes, 30 seconds, something like that. The thing is, to be a marathoner, you have to run five minute miles for 26 miles to be a champion. What I did for one mile, I thought it was all that. Of course, I did my expectoration. Um, <laughs> the coach was appalled. Uh, I'm just telling you all of this as an illustration of exercising and pursuing a goal. You put it in your mind. I am going to do this, whatever it takes. And for Paul, I will do whatever it takes. I will be a Jew to the Jew. I'll be a Greek to the Greek. I'll be a Roman to the Roman. I will do what it takes to present the gospel of Christ. That metaphor for a person, for in my personal level, I look back on that experience and I bring it forward to the daily scriptural, spiritual walk. And all you can talk about are spiritual disciplines. We know of Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, that was very, very popular starting in 1978 when it was first published. This one came out in 1991. It's called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. I highly, highly recommend it. Topics like, let's just read you a little table of contents here. Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, and learning, and then talking about perseverance. And you might think, well, I, I might be willing to do one of those. And okay, that's a start. And then you do another one, and that's your next gear. And then the next gear. And then the next gear. And be prepared in the spiritual walk that you will fail. You will throw up in the first 10 minutes. You will get bored. Something is going to mess things up. But when you persevere, when you continue to exercise, to agonize the self-control in all these things. I wrote here, I said, in the spiritual realm, it's not a grit your teeth and power through it. In reality... In the spiritual disciplines, it is as joyful as falling on a soft pillow and mattress. It's not painful, not necessarily. It's restful because who are you pursuing? You're pursuing Christ. You're not pursuing yourself. In fact, A.W. Tozer put it this way, I'm going to remember his quote. He said, when you get to heaven, it's not going to be a discussion of all of your works. It's going to be a discussion of all the things you did that weren't about you. Because so much of what we do is for ourselves. We are pursuing Christ because he's asked us to. Someone said it's uh, at the same time, uh, the old athletic thing, no pain, no gain. Well, there's, a way of, there's another way of saying that. 
something up here. It's not no. It's K-N-O-W. No pain, and you'll have great gain. So many of us go through circumstances in life that are painful, and we think we, 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 we shouldn't have this. If, if God was actually for us, we wouldn't have any pain at all. And he, on the other side, says, well, actually, if you know pain, you'll know me. That's where it comes in. So it talks about the perishable wreath, the idea of getting some sort of prize. Well, you know, we've talked about the, that they put this laurel wreath on. That depending on who you read, it's either wild olive, parsley, laurel, or pine. No one really knows exactly its makeup. However, one scholar actually dig, again, the trivia rabbit trails I go on, dug so deep he found that the wild olive was the one they gave in the Olympic Games. The parsley was the one they gave in the Nemean Games. The laurel was in the Pythian Games, and the pine was the Isthmian Games. So you could actually have an athlete who won in all four of the games have different types of awards on his wall. But they're made out of leaves. They will perish. Philo, the philosopher, wrote, I know wrestlers and pancreatists often pursue out of love for honor and zeal for victory to the point of death. When their bodies are given up and they keep drawing breath and struggle on spirit alone, a spirit which, which they have accustomed to fear, to respect fear scornfully. And among those competitors, death for the sake of an olive crown is glorious. I mean, the word wreath there is actually the word stephanos. It's the word crown. That's why the King James has the word crown, because that's what the Greek word is. Not diadem. Diadem is another kind of crown. Usually that means a royal crown or even metal, some sort of uh, hoop that goes around the head. But the idea here is this perishable crown. So I came up with something I thought, I was curious, so I looked around and actually found the illustration. When Michael Phelps won his 19th gold in the 2012 Olympic Games, he broke the record for most gold medals for a single athlete, cumulative. Whose record did he break? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. We have no memory of it at all. Isn't that interesting? He broke someone's record. And we, you know, Michael Phelps is the name that's all on everybody's lips. We all talk about him. But what about the person whose record he broke? Her name was Larissa Latnina, who won a Ukrainian gymnast, won golds in the 56, 60, and 64 Olympics. She won 18 of them. And Michael Phelps broke her record, and nobody remembers her. The awards are fleeting. <clears throat> the awards of the world have no lasting <clears throat> element to them. So he says, do I not run aimlessly? So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. One uh, pastor put it this way. It's, it, Paul's illustration is like trying to imagine the beginning of a race with all the runners at their starting points, 
the starting gun goes off and the athletes run helter-skelter in all directions like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> one runs east toward, you know, toward the sun. Another runs toward the mountains. Another wants to go swimming. So he takes off and it's just all chaos. And they are so energetic. I mean, they're at full speed and absolutely just trucking along, doing their thing, but they're not going to win the race. They're running aimlessly. It's not what you're doing. Or the boxer, you know, obviously boxers, you know, they, they air box as part of their training to help understand how their body works. But if they get in the ring and do that, they don't last very long. They tend to, um, how should I say, get beat up. You also have certain parameters in certain races, like in the 220-yard dash. Because in our modern methodology, they don't have the straight line like they did in the old Greek Olympics. You run on the curve. So everyone starts in a staggered start. That's so everybody's actually running 220 yards, including the curve, because if you're on the inside, you have an extra um, advantage than for the guy on the outside. And in the 440, they do the same staggered start, but then at some point, you're allowed to all come down to the bottom, and then they, they start elbowing each other and all that kind of stuff. But in the 220, you can never leave your lane. If your foot even steps on the white line, you're disqualified. And I saw that happen at the state track tournament when I was in high school. The uh, second best runner in the state, on, the f on that turn, you saw him, he didn't quite stumble, but he lost his focus and he, you saw his foot step into the other guy's lane and you saw a flag go up along the track. He finished the race not realizing he won the race, but he was disqualified. He didn't do it right. Or you have other runners who go out and they jackrabbit. They take off. This also happened in that state tournament. It was amazing. One of these long distance races, like a 10,000 meter or some, something, like, something crazy like that. And this kid starts out in a sprint. I mean, he is half, two thirds of the track in front of everybody. And we're all, the whole crowd is murmuring, watching this guy going, what, he's an idiot? What's he doing? And someone said, well, it's the only way he can win because he's not rated. He's not one of the top 10, but he's here at the tournament. He thinks if he can get out and hold that lead enough, well, he never finished the race. I mean, about halfway through, you just saw him start weaving and he started going on. <laughs> People are passing him. And the next thing you know, he just falls into the middle of the track because he had used up all his energy. He didn't train for it right. He thought he could shortcut it. <clears throat> Richard Baxter wrote it this way, it's a most lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and their energy for trifles while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing and that which is nothing seems to them as good as all. It's lamentable indeed knowing that God has set mankind in such a race that they would sit down and loiter or run after childish toys, forgetting the prize that they should run for. 
Were it but possible for one of us to see this business as the all-seeing God does and see what most men and women in the world are interested in and what they are doing every day, it would be the saddest sight imaginable. Oh, how we should marvel at their madness and lament their self-delusion. Or Tozer says, we have a generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines and that is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. We have been trying, <clears throat> trying to apply machine age methods to our relations with God. We read our chapter, have our short devotions, and run away, hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy by attending another gospel meeting or listening to another thrilling story told by a religious adventurer. The tragic results of this spirit are about us. Shallow lives, hollow religious philosophies, and a preponderance of the fun in gospel meetings. The glorification of men, the trust in religious externalities and quasi-religious fellowships, salesmanship methods, and mistaking dynamic personality for the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul ends by saying, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should find myself disqualified. So he actually addresses this in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. To keep this under control. The word discipline actually is the Greek word to buffet myself. Means he's hitting himself with his fists. It's a physical action of not self-flagellation, not the ascetic, you know, the guys who whip themselves and all that to be more holy. He's just trying to say, I need to discipline my body and remind myself every single day what I am called to do. There are no shortcuts. Rosie Vivas, the very famous Boston marathoner, set the all-time record for the Boston Marathon in 1980 until they discovered that she only ran the last mile. She came out of the crowd and won. The thing was, she had qualified for the Boston Marathon by being in the top 10 of the New York Marathon the month before because she rode the subway. And it was discovered later by a journalist who was looking into it, remembering seeing her on the subway when he was on the subway during the race. And so she was disqualified and was very famous for jumping out and setting all these records at the Boston Marathon. But she thought she could win it all. In fact, she refused to give the medal back. She had it when she died last year was found in her possession. She refused to do it because she believed she had won the race and done it all mm. No, she had not. She was a very troubled woman. There are no shortcuts in this race. This week, 
we have a prosperity gospel who is unfortunately in our White House. Her name is Paula White. And this week, she sent out a newsletter to her <clears throat> people that you can get sudden defeat for your enemies if you just send $229 to her ministry. Quote, I decree a prophetic instruction for sudden defeat over your enemies. Victory is yours. Referencing 1 Chronicles 22.9 for the $229, which says, Behold, a son shall be born to you, shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in all his days. And she writes, It's a specific seed, and numbers are important. I believe that God was very clear when I received this word that the 229 seed given in faith can break any chains. That is a charlatan. I'm just standing right here. That's a shortcut. That's thinking, you know, if I apply just the right amount of cash, God will bless me. You know what? You could give every dollar away. You could give every dollar you have away in the service that we're going to. And God won't say, well, finally, now you can get in. It's not how it works. It's, as they say, the steady pace wins the race. It's that idea of starting. Uh, in fact, I read an article about a fellow who said he, during Lent he was going to fast one day a week. And he even wrote, he said, and boy was I going to be holy. <laughs> <laughs> and he realized in the effort of the discipline that he had his mind incorrectly placed because he was doing it for himself. And it was in the fourth attempt, in the fourth week, that he suddenly realized this is not about me. This is about obedience to the call of Christ to move in his direction because when we take our eyes off ourselves, we have our eyes, to use the metaphor, on the prize. And the prize is the high calling of Christ. In 19, what year was it? 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. It was a big deal. No man had ever run a four minute mile. What most people don't remember is that two months later, his record was broken by someone else, a guy named John Landy. We don't know about that, why? Because a month after that, the two of them met in a race. It was Roger Bannister against John Landy, the two fastest men in the world in the mile. The whole race is, is, is going on and in the final stretch, John Landy is winning pretty significantly. But he's running and he, you know, he has his eye on the finish line, but he's thinking, where is Roger Bannister? Where is he? He turned his head and Roger Bannister passed him and won the race and became the greatest mile runner in history up to that time, 1954. No one remembers John Landy. He took his eyes off the prize. Afterwards, he even said, if I had not turned my head, I would have run that race. I would have won it. So many things can distract us. 
So many things can push us aside. I think for Paul, in the context of this whole idea of being holy, being what needs to be done to bring others to Christ in the gospel, and that's what that prize is, and that's what he's talking about. Well, I've run over time, so I've got to end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. There's just so much here. In Bill Linder's memorial service yesterday, a song was sung that had this verse. And the song was made, The Mind of Christ My Savior. And it, the, the lyrics read, May I run the race before me, strong and brave, to face the foe, looking only to Jesus as I onward go. And Lord, I want to make that our prayer. You've put us in this stadia, this race. You ask us to look only to you as the prize. And for that, we are willing to strive and do anything that's necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.